Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In C.S. Lewis's first chronicle of Narnia, it is not long after all four Pevensey children finally tumble through the back of the wardrobe into the fantastical frozen forests to be found there, that they realize that something is tragically amiss in this snowbound world they have discovered. They follow their youngest sister Lucy to the home of the friend she has made on her previous visits, Mr. Tumnus, only to find that it's been broken into and ransacked, a notice nailed ominously to the floor, informing them that Tumnus has been arrested on charges of harboring spies and fraternizing with humans. The older children quickly realize that the wisest course of action will be to return to the wardrobe and the safety of England as soon as possible. But Lucy implores them to help her friend. And so moved by their, her compassion and their own guilt for having dismissed her stories before, they decide to go off and do whatever they can. And so as they wander through the wood, they soon are intercepted by Mr. Beaver, who has been sent by Tumnus to guide them. And from Mr. Beaver, they learn more about this land of Narnia in which they find themselves. They learn of Narnia's false queen, the White Witch, who from her cursed and pretended throne has transformed the once happy kingdom into a joyless and fearsome waste where it is always winter and never Christmas. And yet, Mr. Beaver counsels hope because Aslan is on the move. Now, none of the children have ever heard the name of Aslan before, but at its mere mention, they are all stirred. They all know that there is some sort of power and meaning in this name. And so at the first opportunity, they ask Mr. Beaver, who is Aslan? And he's taken aback. Aslan? You've never heard of Aslan, he says. He's the lord of the whole wood. He's the one who will settle the white queen. For as the old rhyme says, wrong shall be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter will know its death. And when he shakes his mane, there will be spring again. Now, of course, at this description, the children are a bit confused. And so they ask, is Aslan a man? Mr. Beaver is once again incredulous. A man, he says. Certainly not. I have told you. He's the lord of the whole wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. And you must go and meet him. Now once again, the children are confused. And obviously rather nervous about the prospects of meeting the great lion. And so they ask Mr. Beaver a third question that just puts him over the top. Is he safe? Safe, the beaver cries. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, Lewis's tale of lions and witches and wardrobes 
is not really about any of those things. It's really about us and our world, trapped as we are, ultimately in the dearth of a spiritual winter, in thrall to false rulers, sin and death. And it is about God, who in Jesus Christ comes to our rescue through his death and resurrection, to set all things right and to usher in the spring of his love and his life. We, however, like the Pevensey children, may feel intrinsically drawn to this God and yet also threatened by him. Wouldn't it be easier, after all, if he were safe? If we could get what we needed and wanted from him without having to face a power that was beyond our understanding and our control. Yes, we want a God who will fit into our box whom we can wrap our mind all the way around, one that doesn't threaten our sense of security or power in the world. But that's not the God we have. That's not the God that's revealed in Scripture and preeminently in Jesus Christ. Our God, high and lofty, fills the temple with just the hem of his robe. Our God breaks the cedars and makes the mountains skip. He splits the flames of fire and shakes the wilderness with his voice. Our God defies the understanding of even our wisest teachers, and before him we cannot help but to fall back in fear, crying, Woe is me, I am lost. For we are all people of unclean lips who live among people of unclean lips. Our God is not safe, but he is good. It is precisely because of his greatness and his glory, precisely the things that make him unsafe, that he can do what we need him to do, purify our guilt and blot out our sin, that he can give his strength and the blessing of his peace to his people, that he can send his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That he can banish the spirit of fear and give us instead the Holy Spirit that we might call him above, Father. The reason we have this Trinity Sunday and the reason we speak in the language of the Holy Trinity every Sunday is because that language forms us to recognize our good but not safe God despite our tendency to want to shy away. The doctrine of the Trinity is indeed an incomprehensible mystery. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak about and think about our God's incomprehensible glory. It is critical that we speak about it and think about it because from the deepest places within us, God calls us not to understand his glory, but simply to bask in it to enter into it, to sink deeper and deeper in it, now and for all eternity. The doctrine of the Trinity is what safeguards the glory of God in our hearts and our minds precisely by being incomprehensible. If we were to acquiesce to our anxieties and speak instead of a simple God, a safe God, we would quickly find that we've lost everything about our faith that mattered. 
Because we need our God to love us sacrificially. To love us so much that he is willing to do whatever is necessary to save us and to bring us in to that love. And a safe, simple, unitary God might pity us and might give us commands and might even bear us a little bit of affection. But he could not sacrificially love us. We might at best be his pets, but never his children and his heirs. Only the triune God, as dangerous to our understanding and as out of our control as that makes him, only the triune God can love us sacrificially. Because only in his triune nature can he know the reciprocity of relationship that is necessary for sacrificial love. Because he is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he is the perfect love which creates and redeems and restores beings like us and like all that is so that we can be parties to the love which is shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A safe God, a God of our understanding or invention, could never do any of this, could never be the good God whose sacrificial love we so desperately need, whose good news we are sent forth into the world to proclaim, and in whose incomprehensibly great glory we shall rejoice forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.